0: How's everybody doing tonight? It is uh, good to be here. Um, I've known Jacob for 14 years, since he's known me for 14 years, and um, had the privilege of working with your pastor. And um, the people in our business have a high regard for your pastor. The people who are believers love him, and the people who are unbelievers who work in that business have a high respect your pastor. He has a good reputation um, in in all the days that I've known him and it's an honor to serve him tonight and serve you. Um, Your pastor mentioned that the kingdom of God is an all encompassing subject and it begins in Genesis actually and it carries all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. For us to cover all of that would be we would not make it so I'm going to give you highlights of this blessed subject and hopefully whet your appetite to study it further on your own if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8 and if you would look at verse 16 to start with Romans chapter 8 verse 16 The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. One day, one day, we will be fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. First, this veil of suffering, and then glory for us, our inheritance with Jesus Christ. But what is it that we will share with Jesus Christ when we become fellow heirs with him, that is, enter into our inheritance? What is it that we will share with him? Well, much of the answer to that question concerns the coming kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this coming kingdom will be the focus of our attention over the next several weeks. To get, a wrap, to get our arms around this subject, I, I will use the insight of Alva J. McLean, who happened to be my former pastor, Dr. Rice's uh, theology teacher, and my former theology professor, Dr. McCune's theology teacher. Uh, he wrote a book, The Greatness of the Kingdom, and it's a significant work. And if you have an opportunity opportunity to get a copy of it, I would recommend that you do so because it definitely will provide the foundation of much of what I am saying. I, I've learned much from him and have borrowed much from him. Uh, the kingdom of God may be viewed through two lenses. I could view it through God's eternal sovereignty. Or I could view it through the lens of the outworking of God's rule on earth in history. In terms of the lens of God's eternal sovereignty, we may say that God already is and always has been king of this universe. There's never been a time when God hasn't ruled. He has always ruled, Psalm 145 tells us. He has always ruled over all things that he has created, 1 Chronicles 29 both providentially, Psalm 148, and supernaturally, Daniel chapter 6, as he sees fit, regardless of the attitude of his subjects, Daniel chapter 4, through, always through, the administration of his son, Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. McLean calls this sense of the kingdom the universal kingdom or the universal aspect of the kingdom. It is the eternally continuous kingdom that encompasses all things in the created universe, including the earth. It begins at creation and it continues throughout eternity. Now, in terms of the other lens, looking at the kingdom through the lens of the outworking of God's um, rule on earth in history, we may say that God rules through a divinely chosen human representative who speaks and acts for God as well as represents the people before God. On earth, on earth, in time. McLean calls this sense of the kingdom the mediatorial aspect of the kingdom. It is temporal in its outworking, related specifically to the earth, especially to human life upon this earth. It may be interrupted or changed from man's standpoint, and yet always progressing in line with God's eternal, unchanging plan. Ultimately, it is but one aspect underneath the universal aspect of the kingdom of God. Now, for our purposes, we will focus on the promised mediatorial kingdom that is coming, over which Jesus will reign on this earth. But we will begin our discussion of the mediatorial kingdom much earlier. In Actually, we will begin it at Mount Sinai with the children of Israel in order to lay a proper foundation. At Mount Sinai, God set up a mediatorial kingdom on this earth in time over which he was sovereign and in which his law and only his law was the law of the land. It was his law that was the law of Israel. And God's law governed all spiritual, political, religious, socioeconomic, moral, physical aspects of that kingdom, of that historical kingdom. Theologians have called this kingdom a theocratic kingdom, a fancy word for meaning that God ruled that kingdom. God himself ruled that kingdom. In effect, God was king, although provisions were made in God's law for a human mediatorial king. Now, it's my contention, it's my thesis, that understanding the genius, the defining characteristics of the historical kingdom that God established at Mount Sinai is, a, is the key to understanding the coming kingdom of the glorious reign of our Savior. So let's start with that historical kingdom. The United States of America is founded upon certain governing documents. One declared our freedom, the Declaration of Independence. The other declared our governing governing structure and our laws, the Constitution. Well, the historical kingdom of Israel also had a founding document, not one created by man, but one revealed by God. The Mosaic Covenant. That governing document's preamble reveals the foundation of the historical kingdom. I've put in your notes Exodus 19. Look at that text with me, verse 4. You yourselves, this is God speaking, in the preamble of the Constitution of Israel, the Mosaic Covenant, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings. And brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you, Moses, shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, from this preamble, we learn that the kingdom which God is setting up in history is first and foremost God's kingdom. You shall be to me, Exodus 19, verse 6. We see that the kingdom that God promises is to be given to a singular nation of Israel to administer. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel, verse 6. Third, God does not ignore the other nations of the earth in this preamble. They are also his, he says in verse 5, all the earth is mine although Israel is his unique possession, verse 5. And instead of ignoring all the other nations of the earth, God chooses Israel out of the nations of the earth to serve God as his religious, spiritual mediators his, that, that will um, bless the world, the rest of the world, that through which God will bless the rest of the world. Notice verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You will represent me before the world. Because Israel is God's chosen mediator, Israel is to be a holy nation, verse 6, separated to carry out God's purposes, separated from moral evil. And then finally, the kingdom covenant is conditional. Notice that little word in verse 5. If if you indeed Oh will obey my voice and keep my covenant. And Israel pledges to keep the covenant. In Deuteronomy five twenty seven we read All that the Lord our God speaks to you, Moses, we will hear it and do it. All that the Lord has spoken, Exodus chapter nineteen, we will do. And God approves of their response. In Deuteronomy five twenty eight the Lord said to me, to Moses, I heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They said they would, they, they said they would do my covenant. And notice, they say, God says they have done well in all that they have spoken. But he also laments over the fact that he knows that they're weak and that they will disregard his covenant and they will disobey it. And so in verse 29 of Deuteronomy 5, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Breaking the covenant would bring an interruption in time of their mediatorial duties, but not the final end of their mediatorial duties because of God's pledge to Abraham and to David especially. Now, I want us to get a certain picture in our mind when we consider the characteristics of this this historical kingdom. I want you to picture a government with a road map, with a constitution that guarantees maximum blessing. That guarantees it. That guarantees peace with the nations. Economic freedom. Provision for the poor that doesn't take their self-respect away. Consider utopia on earth. When Israel followed God's law. They had it good. Now keep this picture in mind as we consider the fundamental characteristics that are exhibited in this constitution of the United Tribes of Israel. The Mosaic Covenant. These fundamental characteristics, and think about this, are only a foretaste. Only a delightful foretaste of the blessings that will abound when Jesus returns to set up His coming kingdom. In the fundamental characteristics of the historical kingdom, we find at least six of them in Israel's law, its governing document, the Mosaic Covenant. The spiritual foundational aspect first, that Israel had a spiritual relationship with God the Father. God is spirit. So any relationship that he has with, with certain people is a spiritual relationship. His law was spiritual. Paul says the law is spiritual in Romans chapter 7. It's spiritual because it governs the heart. It doesn't just govern the externals. It governs the heart. They had a spiritual fellowship that was facilitated by the sacrificial system where man needed forgiveness of sins and God provided a picture for them of the ultimate Sacrifice for sin that he was sending, and then there was spiritual communication with God and the people through Moses and the children of Israel at the tabernacle. The spiritual aspect of the Old Testament kingdom is the foundational aspect, or else there would be no theocracy. This aspect of the kingdom, the spiritual aspect, permeates all these, all the other aspects: the political aspect, the historical kingdom at a national political aspect. It was a kingdom ruled by law. Not a law agreed to by the people, but a law that God gave. It was a law that God revealed. The political structure of the kingdom was was revealed in that law. And, And the mediator of this historical kingdom had a limited sphere of authority. He had executive duties, and he also had judicial duties. He had no legislative duties. He could make no law. He had to follow the law and execute the law and judge on the basis of the law that God had revealed. And even his executive and judicial functions were limited. God, he was always accountable to God and was always accountable to be aided and directed by God with things like the Urim and the, and the Thummim that was on the breastplate of the high priest. There was an international aspect. Generally, Israel was granted supremacy over all the nations of the world, both politically and economically, not based on the force of a political system, but based on the favor of God. In terms of the of the Canaanites who lived in the land of Palestine, when they came into the land, God told them to make no covenant with the Canaanites in the land in order to avoid mimicking them. In fact, they were to completely destroy them to avoid being contaminated by their gross perversions. And if, it, if that seems too harsh, then we ought to read Leviticus chapter 18 and contemplate the horrible evil that was perpetrated by the Canaanites in the sacrificing of their sons and daughters to false idols, etc. For Israel to get involved with that would mean that she would cease to be the channel of blessing to the whole world and she could not be contaminated. And so complete destruction of them was necessary. And God had given plenty of time for the Canaanites to repent. In terms of those who lived outside the land of Canaan, all those nations, they were to leave them alone. Deuteronomy chapter 20, unless they became hostile toward Israel. And if they became hostile toward Israel, Deuteronomy 20 lays down the law, then Offer them a peace treaty. If they refuse the peace treaty, um, if they accept the peace treaty, make them tributaries to Israel. If they refuse the peace treaty, then you are to attack them and kill only the men to remove any danger of further hostility. Eventually, Israel was to be a blessing to all the nations that will surround them. And that's exactly what they'll be in the coming kingdom of our Lord. The religious aspect. There was an outward religious expression in Israel. And when we use the word religion, we're using it in the sense of the sum total of outward actions that are expressed to God. And certainly they had outward actions. They had a selected priesthood. They had a ritual that was described in minute detail in Leviticus and in the law. There was a central place of religious assembly. So they had an outward visible aspect of worship before God. There was to be a separation of religious and political powers. The civil function was not to usurp or interfere with the religious function, and the religious function was not to usurp or interfere with the with the civil function. The priestly function was supported by the state. It, the tribe of Levi, who were the priests, had no inheritance in the land, uh, like the other tribes did. That protected the state from a financially powerful priesthood that uh, owned a major part of the state in Egypt and caused much problems. Uh, Instead, Levi had a greater inheritance. It had an inheritance from the Lord. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, the Lord says this, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. I am your inheritance. The Lord provided for the tribe's through the people when bringing their tithes and offerings. It all belonged to him anyway. And so he provides, he distributes to those who are serving him in the temple through the people in terms of tithes and offerings. And no freedom of religion was allowed. That would have been the worst thing for the children of Israel to go out and worship other gods who were false and would lead them to destruction. The socio-economic aspect. Think of the divine origin of Israel's wealth. They come down into Egypt. During the famine, they have just a few animals. They are given the land of Goshen. And and the animals that they have, uh, the sheep and the the cattle, they just expand numerously. When they are leaving the land of Egypt after God Uh, sends the plagues on Pharaoh and he lets the children of Israel go, the Egyptians give them all kinds of gold and silver because the Lord stirred up their heart to do so. Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 12 tells us this. And then the land which Israel eventually acquired was given to them by divine grant. So Israel's wealth was a gift from God. To them, And they had personal freedom in regard to that wealth. God gave them a certain amount of personal freedom. Uh, and he protected that economic freedom as well as provided for the poor among them. Notice the protection of that freedom. Every family was given an original allotment of land, except for the Levites, as we noted. And, and there were conditions attached to that. The land, in effect, was leased from God because it belonged to God the landowner had the freedom to farm it to abandon it to rent it out to sell it temporarily however the landowner could not sell his land permanently or give his land away permanently so that his future heirs would have no inheritance leviticus 25:23 this is what the lord says leviticus 25:23 the land moreover shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. So there was a certain amount of economic freedom uh, that was that was protected in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, as the provision for the poor, since human beings uh, could sell their property, and since Israelites could sell their property, uh, and Israelites... Uh, farmed the land, and that's where they got their sustenance. If they sold their land or abandoned their land, then they would become impoverished. And the law says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, for the, the poor will never cease to be in the land. The poor will never cease to be in the land. But God provided for the poor in the Mosaic Covenant. He uh, provided for them in in many ways. Even if they lost their land out of laziness or they made uh, an economic mistake, uh, a blunder, if you will, God provided for them in in various ways. The landowners were to leave the fringes of the crops. They were not to harvest the fringe of the crops so that the poor could come in and harvest them. Think of Ruth. Uh, They were not to charge the poor interest on a loan. Exodus 22:25. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. They were to hold no security or collateral on a loan that was essential to the well-being of the poor. Exodus 22, verse 26. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. And then the Sabbath rest of the land aided the poor. Every every seventh year, the land was given rest so that the poor, especially the poor, um, could partake of that land. And then after seven Sabbaths, or the fiftieth year, called the year of Jubilee, The land had rest on the 49th year and the 50th year, and God promised that he would give food for three years for everyone in the land, including the poor. And then the law of the kinsman redeemer, the law of redemption by the kinsman redeemer, also gave the poor hope uh, even before the year of Jubilee. So in conclusion, one um, person who is no friend of Bible truth, T.S. Huxley, a a famed philosopher, said this. The Bible has been the Magna Carta of the poor and of the oppressed down to modern times. No state has had a constitution in which the interests of the people are so largely taken into account in which the duties so much more than the privileges of rulers are so insisted upon as that drawn up for Israel in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It It was a A a great thing that our Lord did for the poor. And then he was interested also in providing for the physical well-being of of the people. And there's so much information in the the law, in the covenant, in the constitution uh, of the United Tribes of Israel on that, that um, uh, we could go on and on. But as Israel first started out, uh, God provided for them with fruitfulness beyond what was was naturally expected. Of other nations. Deuteronomy 7.14 You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. God provided food from heaven for them while they journeyed on the wilderness journey. God provided water for them. At the, he turned the bitter water into sweet water at Marah. He, he brought water from a rock for them when they needed something to drink. Their clothing did not wear out. Their clothing did not wear out. Where else would they have got clothing? Uh, they were free from all diseases at that particular time. God said "If in uh, Exodus 15, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. And human life life could be lengthened. If you honored your father and your mother, God would extend your life. That was one of the commandments, that your days may be prolonged. And then there were physical benefits through divinely ordained uh, human means. Although God is the provider of all physical provision for Israel, he does require effort on the part of Israel. They were not to use fruit-bearing trees in siege, you know, to go against the city in siege. Um, that was to, that was fruit for their own use. Only the young um, uh, could be taken in a hunt, and not the mother. The mother must be spared if, if they hunted fowl. Uh, the sabbatical year ensured the land would get some rest so that it would be more productive. They had sanitation rules that... Um, that even marveled the the sanitation uh, rule things that we do today. For example, the hygiene of the army of Israel in the law was as good as the army hygiene that we have today. God was interested in taking care of them. Leprosy. The leper had certain rules connected with them. They had to visibly identify themselves as lepers. They had to uh, also express that verbally to say, cry out unclean. And all the other nations of the earth at that time had problems with leprosy but God and major problems with leprosy. But God was interested in taking care of his people. The moral aspect. The Mosaic Covenant had great value in the moral arena, too. The Mosaic Law was divinely revealed and written down. It wasn't just a law written on the heart. It was actually written down for them to see. The Mosaic Law required for them to live in harmony with God, the first four commandments, and to live in harmony with their neighbor, the commandments five through ten. And it emphasized a vital connection between moral conduct and human welfare. If they obeyed, and Deuteronomy 28 is the crown central piece of that. If they obeyed God's law, he would bless them. He promised them. If they disobeyed God's law, he would curse them. And he also promised that. Now, we know that divine judgment fell on this historical kingdom because of the failure of the people. Nevertheless, the kingdom envisioned by the Mosaic Covenant, the Constitution of Israel, was a good kingdom. If Israel had followed God's laws, it would have been good for them. Let's remind ourselves of this in summary. The spiritual aspect. Based on this covenant, Israel had a relationship with the true God not a false god but a true but the true god that surely is good the political aspect based on this covenant god would give israel's leadership responsibility over all other nations and lasting peace they wouldn't have to worry about being a war or losing a war they would have lasting peace and all and all of their conflicts they would win surely this is good the religious aspect, based on this covenant that God established with Israel, he established them as a kingdom of priests to the whole world. This nation was to be God's mediator with the whole, before the whole world, and therefore they wouldn't sacrifice their sons and daughters to pagan idols. Surely that's good. The socioeconomic aspect, based on this covenant, God would grant prosperity to the nation enough for everybody including the poor surely that's good and the physical aspect god would look after the physical and uh, physical well-being and the health of israel and surely that's good and then the moral aspect based on this covenant god would israel would live in harmony with god and with with each other and surely that's good if israel had met the conditions of the mosaic covenant in this historical kingdom life would would have been so good for them. Israel would have learned by experience that all good comes from God and therefore all glory belongs to God alone. And it is true in our life. All good that comes into our life has been given to us by God and therefore all glory belongs to God. Yet even if the fundamental characteristics of this historical kingdom had operated fully The blessings that flowed from it would only have been a delightful foretaste of the kingdom that is coming. Only a delightful foretaste of the kingdom that is coming that will abound when Jesus returns to this earth. And it has its roots in this historical kingdom. But we leave this blessed possibility and turn our attention to the ugly reality. Israel's the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. To experience the blessings promised required Israel's obedience to it. Surely, this breeds or spells failure. Even its best leaders fail. Think with me about them. Joshua, he makes a covenant with the giving of because he doesn't seek the Lord's direction or ask for the Lord's wisdom. The judges, they're a sorry lot really in their character. And God used them. Think of David. A man after God's own heart commits adultery with Bathsheba and is complicit in murder. His son, Solomon, the wisest man on the face of the earth, he takes the kingdom to its pinnacle Surely, the wisest man on the face of the earth would never do anything to disobey God. And explicitly, Solomon knew that the law said, Don't, God said, don't multiply to yourself military horses. Don't multiply to yourself wise. And don't multiply or hoard wealth. And he did all three of those things. And then his son ran along. When he took over, He split the kingdom instead of acting wisely. Yet we must remind ourselves that these people lead God's kingdom. This is God's kingdom. They are God's representatives. And even the best of them fail. Why did God establish a kingdom like this? Remember, this is His kingdom. He established it. But why like this? Well, He wants to teach us something I believe but what well as I have said I believe God is in the process of teaching us a positive truth that all good comes from him if we have any good in our life it came from him and therefore all glory belongs to him but he's also in the process of showing us a negative truth and that is this that we are proud arrogant people and our only hope Is that God humbles us, even the best of us, and that He leads us to humble ourselves before Him. Now we could spend a lot of time. I have, can I take four more minutes? Okay, we could spend a lot of time. So to chronicle their fall, but we don't have that time. So I just want to go to the end, down to the end. So if you would turn to Ezekiel chapter eight. Ezekiel gives us the vision of the end of this historical kingdom. Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel sees the the glory of God in the temple. His visible presence in the temple. It's his kingdom. He has a visible presence in the temple. Ezekiel sees it. And he sees the glory of God, if you would look at Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 4, in its proper place in the temple and behold the glory of the god of israel was there like the appearance which i saw in the plain but verse 3 tells us that also shamefully the idol of jealousy was right outside now later in that vision if you would turn to ezekiel chapter 9 we're just moving fast and look at verse 3 ezekiel sees the glory of god move from the cherub in the inner temple it's moving from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And then look at Ezekiel chapter 10 and look at verse 3. As the glory of God moves to the threshold of the temple, the presence of God's glory fills the temple with a cloud and the court with the brightness of of the glory of the Lord. Notice verse 3. Now the cherubim were, sh- were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of, God, of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And now look at Ezekiel chapter 11. And look at verse 23. It's moved from the cherub. It's moved to the threshold of the temple, and now it leaves Jerusalem. The visible presence of the glory of God leaves Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. When Israel returns, it builds Zerubbabel's temple. It's enlarged under Herod, but there's no presence of the glory of the Lord there. Israel comes back to the land. And God never abandons them, nor does He abandon their promise. But they, and they come back and build the temple, but He doesn't put His presence there. It's not there in those temples. Um, he's not done with them. But they're no longer a theocracy when they come back. They're not an independent nation. they have never been a theocracy ever since one day when Jesus returns. The theocracy will begin again. The consequence of the departure of God's Shekinah glory, political supremacy is transferred from Israel to the Gentiles. At the same time that the glory of God departs from the temple, God gives Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest ruler of the nation of the, uh, on the earth at that time, this great vision. And he says, you're the head of gold. And then then he gives him the plan of God clear down to the time that Jesus returns. And the world's not under Jewish power. The world's under Gentile men. Until Jesus returns. But the prophets see something different. And that's what we'll look at next week, Lord willing. We bring ourselves, just in closing, to this thought in history. The glory of God had just departed from the temple. His visible presence is no longer seen on this earth. You could have seen it. You could have seen it if you had been with Israel at Mount Sinai. You could have seen it, and I could have seen it, in the tabernacle in the wilderness. We could have seen it in a veiled fashion when Jesus, the Messiah, was upon this earth. If you had walked with him, but you can look for it anywhere you like today and you will not find the visible presence of the glory of the Lord. The world is a dark place and it got darker in Ezekiel's vision. There are lights here and there like this church that blaze the light of the gospel and the spirit of God calls people to our Lord but Ichabod on this world. The glory of the Lord has departed and it will not return until Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. He will bring the glory of the presence of Almighty God back to Jerusalem, back to this earth in the glory and beauty of his presence. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want you to come. Thank you.